But we do live in such dark days that sometimes we're tempted to despair, our God. Your Son has a word for us about just that. So give us ears to hear today, and let us hear and heed what he says to us. He who is the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look together at a parable about sowing and seeds and fruit. You say, wait a minute. Didn't we just look at a parable about sowing and seeds and fruit? Yes, we did. But in this parable, those same images have a different meaning and a different message and makes a different point. The parable conveys new truth from Jesus' mind to us about the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, Why are there still so many evil people are one of the questions this speaks to. Uh, Will there always be so many evil people in the world? Where is all this heading to? And what action should we as believers take towards unbelievers in the world? And is the kingdom here now? Did the kingdom of God fail to come or what? These are some of the things to which Jesus speaks in this parable. So, as usual, let us begin simply by looking at the parable and studying the words of the parable, making sure that we understand the literal image of what Jesus paints out for us so that we can truly understand his message in it. The first thing we're confronted by is sowings. It's important you spell that with an O. We're not talking about needle and thread. We're talking about seeds and dirt. S-O-W-I-N-G-S, sowings. Another parable he put before them, as I've translated this for you, the kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man sowing good seed in his field. But as his men slept, his enemy came and additionally sowed darnel in the midst of the wheat, and he went away. So first let's look at the sowing of the wheat in verse 24. The kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man sowing good seed in his field, and that good seed is wheat. Now, I remind you that this parable comes after a section that's a flash forward. These are parables, four parables that Jesus told the crowds on the seashore. And Matthew kind of skips ahead to bring forward the time that the disciples later come up to him and say, explain the parable of the soils to us. And he explains to them. And now with this, he goes back into the boat, speaking to the mixed crowd on the, on the seashore. And when Jesus says the parable, the kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man, he's not saying that it's like that man, but it's like this whole situation. I'd paraphrase it as the kingdom of the heavens is likened to the situation of a man sowing good seed and then an enemy sowing darnel on top of that. That's what we're looking at. The whole picture conveys to us something about the kingdom of the heavens, something that we couldn't have learned from the Old Testament. That's why it's called a mystery. So... um, He sows wheat. Now, what's the significance of that? Tells us something about the sort of man we're supposed to envision. Uh, Of the popular crops, wheat and barley, wheat was the more expensive, barley was the cheaper. He's sowing the better seed. What else can we tell about this man Jesus wants us to picture? Well, he's got slaves working for him. So he probably wasn't just a subsistence farmer, uh, just growing enough to feed his family. He was a businessman. He had a large estate on which he was growing this better crop, this crop of wheat, uh, of which his slaves could be sure he would get and sow good seeds. So, so far the sowing of the wheat. Now, number two, second, the sowing of the darnel. Now, I have to say, I think all my life I've said that word wrong. I've said it darnel, and I've learned recently that it's actually darnel. So if I slip, pardon me. But I've got it underlined a couple of times in my notes to try to keep me on track. So the sowing of the darnel. What, what is this darnel? You're used to hearing it called tares, but more exactly, it probably is a, a variety of rye grass known as bearded darnel that grows only in the Middle East. We don't have it here, I understand. And it's a very hardy form of rye grass. Uh, its roots go deeper than the roots of wheat. It grows a little faster than wheat. And at first, as wheat and darnel grow, they're indistinguishable from each other. They look exactly like each other until the heads form. And then it's 
readily apparent which is the wheat and which is the darnel, but not until then. And the thing about it is, it's not just the wrong crop, it's a harmful crop. It's actually a poisonous weed. It itself is poisonous, but it usually plays host to a fungus or a mold. And the, the, the effect is that if somebody were to eat the fruit of the darnel, uh, he would certainly be sick to his stomach. He might become listless. He might even become blind. He might even die. So this is a very serious, uh, seriously wrong sort of crop. And understanding that, you're ready to assess what this action is of the enemy. You might have thought it was a prank. You might have thought that it was just a, a, a malicious sort of thing he did just to mess up. But no, it's not a prank at all. It's a very, very serious thing. In fact, one scholarly source I studied calls it an act of agricultural terrorism. And that's probably not far off because the effect of doing this could be simply to ruin the crop. Because if it's a crop that's mixed with darnel and wheat, it is useless. If he didn't discern it and tried to sell it, then as the deaths and the sicknesses piled up, he'd have a real problem on his hand. And he'd say, well, I bet nobody did that. Oh, no, there was a Roman law about it. So obviously that reflects the fact that some people did do this. This farmer could be ruined by this. Farming was not his hobby. It was his lifeblood. It was his livelihood. So to ruin his crop would be to ruin his life. Uh, if uh, some of you were old enough to remember the Tylenol poisonings in 1982, when suddenly some bottles of Tylenol turned out to have cyanide in them and people died. Uh, well, before then, mo many of you are not old enough to remember this, but bottles were just open. On the, uh, not open, I mean they were openable. Uh, we live in days of seals of various kinds and sometimes several seals on the bottle so that when you buy a bottle of Tylenol or what have you, you can tell it's not been tampered with, it's never been opened. Well, that's thanks to this horrible incident. Before then it was not necessary, but then it became necessary. Well, this was that sort of a thing. It was an act of absolute aggression and malice and intended to ruin this man, not just to annoy him or make life harder for him. It was an act of hatred. So, secondly, let's look at what comes after the sowing, which is the separations. And the first separation is a realization that there's a separation. A realization that there's not one crop growing there, but two crops. That's number one. After separations, letter B, number one, realization. And when the plant sprouted and made fruit, then also the darnel appeared. <clears throat> you see, that's the only point at which you'd know. It was identical up to the point when the heads flow and you look, uh, grow and form, and you look for these nice uniform grain on a wheat, and you see the scattered, strange kind of fruit that a darnel grows, and you realize, oh no, oh no. And I can imagine not wanting to be the slave that had to tell the master, but I've got some really, really bad news. We don't just see some darnel. Because you, whenever you buy seed, you're going to get some bad seed. We don't just see some darnel in the crop. We see darnel all over the crop. It's all mixed in with the entire crop of wheat. And they only see that after, I don't, I don't know the time frame, but whether the weeks or the months of this watering and tending and caring for and scaring the birds away and finally coming to the harvest time and oh, darnel mixed in with the wheat. This is a disaster. So, number two, the recognition in verses 27 and 28a. And the slaves of the housemaster came up and said to him, Lord, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then whence does it have darnel? And he told them, a man who is an enemy did this. Now first I'd like to point out that this is not an accusation. The way it's framed in Greek, uh, the slaves expect a positive answer. You could have just as well said, uh, you, you sowed good seed, didn't you? Expecting him to say yes. I mean, they know he did. They know he sowed good seed. But then where does this darnel come from? They're not saying, why is there any of it? Because like I say, you can't hardly ever buy absolutely pure lots of seed. What they're asking is, why is there so much of it? Why is it mixed in within the, throughout the entire crop? Well, he knows what they don't know. He knows who did it. And he says, a man who is an enemy uh, did this. A man who is a, a hater 
That's the more literal signification of ekthros, an enemy, a man who's a hater, someone who hates me. Someone who hates me did this, he's saying. And you see, in what this man did in this parable, it's an act of sheer malice. It's an act of sheer economical violence. It doesn't directly benefit him. What, what good does it do him? How is he helped by this? It doesn't, and that's not the point of it. It doesn't directly do him any good. It simply is meant to ruin the farmer. And this is an act of sheer hatred uh, directed to destroy the farmer. So after that recognition, we have the reaction in verses 28b and 30. We have what the slaves propose in verse 28b. <clears throat> and his slaves say to him, then do you wish us to go off and collect them? Well, you might say they're taking the short-term view. They're taking the short-term view because that makes sense, doesn't it? We've got this problem right now, so why don't we not delay? Why don't we just go out and start pulling up the darnel so that the wheat can have the field to themselves? It's a solution, but it's a short-term solution, and it's not the right solution. And I just would notice in passing, they don't propose any retaliation on the enemy. The enemy is now forgotten. It's just a matter of dealing with the problem. So that's what they propose. That's their proposed solution. But we have the commanded solution or reaction in verses 29 and 30. And that's where the master says, No, lest while collecting the darnel you uproot the wheat together with them. Leave both to keep growing together until the harvest. And in the set time of the harvest, I will say to the harvesters, collect first the darnel and bind them into bundles so as to burn them up and the wheat gather together into my granary. So he rejects their, their short-term suggestion because the roots of the plants are intertwined. Because they are mixed up together. And you pull up a darnel, you're going to pull up the wheat with it. The roots are intertwined. They're mixed up together. So the solution is simply to let this mixed crop grow as a mixed crop until the harvest. And at that point, it's easy to separate them, though it is tedious to do. But it's easy to do because there's no mistaking wheat from darnel. They're obviously very different. Now notice, just notice in terms of the parable, the harvest is a set time. It's going to happen. It's a sure thing. There's a terminus to this. It doesn't go on forever and ever and ever. It goes on to the harvest. And so in the harvest, what they do is they just pull it all up and lay it out. And it's usually left to the children and the, and the women to separate them. It's a tedious task, but it's a fairly simple task. A child could tell the difference between wheat and darnel. And so after these two crops are separated from one another, they go to two ends. Oh, that looks just like the title, doesn't it? Two seeds, one field, two ends. Now I get it. So one of the, one of the crops, if you want to call it that, goes off to, to be bundled up and burned. It was used for fuel. It'd be bundled up in a, in a place where there wasn't necessarily fuel readily and easily available down at the, at the corner gas station. They would put it to some use anyway, and they would bundle it up and use it for fuel for burning. But the wheat, on the other hand, would go off into the barns and in his granary, and he would sell them or make whatever use of them that he would make in the picture of this terrible parable. Not a terrible parable, it's a parable. Uh, but what it's talking about is kind of terrible. So. Um, so that's the meaning of the parable. We understand that. And I remind you, it, you always have to understand the literal as foundational for understanding anything in the Bible. Literal picture is always foundational, even when there is symbolism or, or a, a, a more spiritual meaning. It always is based on understanding the literal picture, which is what we've just labored to do. So that done then, let's turn to its interpretation in verses 36 through 44. How many parables are there in this chapter? There are eight parables. How many of them does Jesus interpret for the disciples? Well, let me put it this way. How many, does he inter how many of them does he... This is a trick question. I always warn you when it's a trick question. How many of the parables does he interpret for the people on the seashore? Well done. Thank you. If I hadn't warned you, would you have... Uh, well, let's not go there. Uh, let's not go there. So how many of them does he interpret for the disciples then? He interprets three of them. The parable of the soils, 
the parable of the wheat and the darnel, and the parable of the dragnet. And it's interesting, the wheat and the darnel and the parable of the dragnet, those are the first and the last of the inner six, and they're very like each other. They're both about mixtures, mixed wheat and darnel, mixed good fish and bad fish, but uh, more on that when we get there, Lord willing. So, uh, first the interpretation then in verse 36 is sought by the disciples, S-O-U-G-H-T. They seek for it. It is sought by them. Then he left the crowds and came into the house, possibly his house. You could also translate it that way. And his disciples came up to him saying, clarify for us the parable of the Darnell in the field. Well, this is one of the ones that he does clarify, and I'm so grateful that they asked. I'm almost so grateful for their every, every stupid thing they say and every question they ask. I'm very grateful for it. I'm glad they were there to ask those things to help me. But it's interesting to plug in the Sermon on the Mount here, I think. <clears throat> for one thing, to go back, remember they ask him, why are you talking to them in parables? And he says, because they see and see and don't see. And they hear and hear, but don't listen. It's a judgment on them. And what does that echo in the Sermon on the Mount that he tells us? He says, don't cast your pearls before the pigs. Don't give what's holy to the dogs. And this is the very thing he's doing there. But here's another part. When the, the, the apostles come up, the disciples come up and ask for clarification, what are they doing? They're asking. They're seeking. They're knocking. Like he says in Matthew 7, 7, And indeed, the door is open. Indeed, they do find, because he does explain this to them. And that's just like what he just said, isn't it? In in, uh, chapter 13, verse 12. To them, God did not sovereignly give the ability to hear these parables, but to you it has been given. And what does he add? To him who has, what? More will be given. And so it is they have, but he's happy and willing to give them more in opening this up to them. So they sought the interpretation, thank God for that, that's why we have it, and letter B, stated, the interpretation is stated by Jesus. So we are not open to put any interpretation on it we want, we need to go with the interpretation Jesus puts on. I tell you, just as an aside, one of the most surreal experiences I've had as a writer was when I was writing for Pyromaniacs, and I wrote something and somebody commented on it, and I, I... I told him, no, you've misunderstood. That's not what I meant at all. And he said, no, no, no. He argued with me about what I meant. He told me I was wrong about what I meant by what I wrote. Well, sadly, when it comes to the Bible, that's a very common uh, practice. But let us not do that. We have Jesus opening it up for us himself. So let's heed what he says. First, noting the significance of the seven symbols. This is unusual for a parable. Usually there's just one or two significant symbols in the parable. But Jesus singles out seven. There's a list of seven here. Uh, Let's just go through it quickly and then talk about them. And he, in answer, said... He who sows the good seed is the son of man. There's one. And the field is the world, two. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, three. But the darnel are the sons of the wicked one, four. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, five. And the harvest is the consummation of the age, six. And the harvesters are angels, seven. So let's go through, through this a little more uh, slowly and, and by groupings. Let's go through the list, first noting the symbols at the beginning of the parable. And the first we see is two sowers. Remember, O, not E. Sowers, S-O-W-E-R-S. Seeds, not needles. So the first and the second symbol are explained by Jesus. Number one, he says, the one who sows the wheat is the son of man. Now I remind you, this is his most, his favorite title for himself. And where does he get this? He gets it from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where after seeing a succession of the kingdoms of man coming up from the sea, Daniel says, sees one like a son of man coming down with the clouds of heaven. And he's given authority, dominion, and a kingdom over all and forever. So he comes as judge and king, and in this context, Jesus calls himself that, refers to himself as the son of man. He's the one who sows the wheat in this picture. So who's the sower of the darnel? That's the second image. The sower of the darnel is the wicked one, which is a title for Satan, the devil. Uh, Notice a few things about the wicked one. First of all, he's not the owner of the field. He, in fact, doesn't really own anything. 
He just comes in and he tries to do ruinous mischief on the field. Uh, It's not his field. It's the housemaster's field, but he wants to ruin. And he doesn't come to plant anything positive, to build anything good, to accomplish any good, whatever. He just wants to ruin what the owner sowed. There's a lot of meaning in that, isn't there, when you think about the motivations and the, and the works of the devil. He doesn't own anything. He doesn't make anything original. He just wants to ruin it by planting an imitation, by planting something like what is good, but not good, poisonous. All he can do is try to ruin the housemaster's crop. That's the two sowers. Then we see two seeds. Jesus says the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Well, I'll just explain that in in Jesus' words and the apostles' words. I'll I'll cite the verses. You write them down. I'll read them to you. First of all, just remember the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 9 and 10. Matthew 5, verses 3, 9 and 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Verses 9 and 10, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's what he means when he says they are sons of the kingdom. It belongs to them. It's theirs. He's used that term ironically about Israel, saying that they would be cast out. They're the natural heirs of the kingdom. They should have been part of the kingdom, but they rejected the Messiah. So they would be cast out in place of others, and these are those others. John 3, verses, chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. First with Matthew 5, verses 3, 9 and 10. Now John 3, verses 3 and 5. Nicodemus has come to Jesus with a bunch of flattery, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he adds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So what do we know about these sons of the kingdom? Well, they're born again. They've been born by the sovereign work of the Spirit of God, giving them life. And what else do we know? Let's look to the apostle, Philippians 3.20. What does he say? He says, For our citizenship is in heaven. Now notice, he doesn't say we're in the kingdom but we are citizens of the kingdom. It's future. It's not here. We are. It isn't. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one more. That was Philippians 3.20. Now Colossians 1.13, where Paul gives praise to the Father who rescued us from the authority of darkness, or I would translate the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. That speaks of a transfer of citizenship. We were full citizens of the kingdom of darkness and sons of the wicked one, but God, by sovereign grace and mercy, transfers our citizenship into the kingdom of the Son of His love, surely by an act of His love. And no wonder that the apostle praises Him. So that's what the wheat represents. It represents the sons of the kingdom. How about the darnel? What does it represent? Jesus tells us it represents the sons of the wicked one. Now here, I, I, I listened to a sermon by a, a rightly beloved Bible teacher um, who took the position that Jesus never calls common unbelievers sons of the devil, that that's reserved for religious leaders only. I just don't find that to be true, and, and you'll see that in these verses. The sons of the wicked one are basically everybody else. Everybody who's not a son of the kingdom is a son of the wicked one. And this starts out, where, where does this imagery start of the two seeds? Where does that start? It starts in Genesis 3, in the, the prophecy of Christ, where God says, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, that is hatred, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, her seed is Jesus, but all the people who are in Christ are his people. And so there's a hostility between the devil's seed. The devil has a, a line of people related to him spiritually and morally as well. 
And that's what we're seeing here in the darnel, in the sons of the wicked one, as Jesus says. John, Jesus says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. All this idea that everyone's a child of God and we're just brothers under the skin. Oh no, this is not a teaching of scripture. Uh, we are creatures of God, certainly. We're subjects of God, absolutely. But you only become a child of God by approaching him through Christ. All roads lead to God. All religions lead to God. But only one leads to him as Father. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only through Jesus do we come to him as Father. We come to him any other way. We, we, we come to him as judge and condemner and executioner. As this parable will discuss. Finally, 1 John 3.10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. So he doesn't single out religious leaders. He simply says it's either children of God or children of the devil. And Jesus says we've just got two crops here. And one are the wheat, which represents the sons of the kingdom, and one is darnel, which represents the sons of the wicked one. Two seeds. Number three, one field. Now this is very important. You'd be surprised how often this has gotten wrong and this parable is misused. You tell me, you got the translation right in front of you, what does Jesus say the field is? Real loud and clear, I'm, I'm kind of old. The world. Say that one more time for me. What is the field? But you would be shocked to know how many people, including early church fathers, interpreted the field to be the church. And explained that that's why in the church there's wheat and darnel. Now, this is useful to people who want to have state churches. Like the, like the Church of England, like the, the uh, German Lutheran Church, and so forth and so on. You say everybody in that state is, is a church member. But you look and you say, but they're all so many unbelievers. In fact, most of them are unbelievers. How are they church members? There's wheat and darnel in the church. Ah, I just did it again. Wheat and darnel. There's wheat and darnel in the church. Wheat and tares. Not in this parable. In this parable, the field is not the church. It's the world. And so uh, it's used to explain why you baptize babies, but they don't grow up to be believers, but they're still members of the church. Why? There's wheat and darnel in the church, wheat and tares in the church. And, uh, and this is why the, the, well, anyway, they, on and on with a misidentification of what the field is and the idea that it, it, you don't need to give any effort to making sure that people who are baptized and people who join the church are believers. If they want to join, just let them in. That's a great thing. You want to encourage them. I've seen supposedly evangelical leaders say that. That they don't want to be too picky because they think it's a great thing if somebody wants to join the church. And if they're not believers, well, they'll be here and hear the word of God. But that's not what this parable certainly says. This is not about the church. The church is supposed to be made up of believers. Now, anyone can come and hear the word preached. Amen. But the membership of the church is supposed to be, as far as the leadership can tell, made up exclusively of born-again believers. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. And are there unbelievers in the body of Christ? No, there are not. So as much as we're able, we discern and we distinguish and only admit to membership and to baptism those who have been born again and those who do currently believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The field is not the church. The field is the world. And the world is a mixture. It's supposed to be a mixture. That's what this parable teaches us. That's the world doing the world. It's a mixture of wheat and darnel. But the church is supposed to be wheat. It's supposed to be unleavened. It's supposed to be believers only. Now let's talk about the end of the parable. And that brings us to the harvest. Symbol number six. The harvest. Number one there under the end of parable. The harvest. What does Jesus say that is? It's the consummation of the age. Now there's a couple of important things to note there. We'll return to this later. But that word consummation is a is a wonderful word. It means that all these events are heading towards this. 
that this is the consummation of the age. All of the disparate and apparently unrelated things happening, the shootings, the wars, the discoveries, the abandonments, the fads, all this is heading towards a consummation. There is a divinely determined and set. Like he says, the set time of the harvest. The heart, we know when the harvest is going to be. God knows when the consummation is going to be. And that's when everything is going to be brought to God's determined head in God's determined time and God's determined way. That's the consummation of the age. And notice too that when does the kingdom come then? Does the kingdom come at the beginning of this period of sowing and growing? No. The old, there's no description of the kingdom of God that shows wheat and, and darnel growing side by side and wickedness being tolerated and thriving and equal to righteousness. That is no description of the kingdom. This is not the kingdom. When does the kingdom come? After the consummation. After the harvest. That's when the kingdom comes. These are very important points. This helps us understand where we are and, and, and what God's plan is. And the gospel ends with this. This is literally the last verse in, verse in the gospel. Matthew 28, 20. You remember Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, he says, to keep everything I've commanded you. And behold, what does he say? I am with you literally all the days until the consummation of the age. And that's this exact same phrase. I am with you all the days. So all through this period of mixed growing with wheat and darnel, I'm with you, sons of the kingdom, all those days until the consummation of the age. That's the harvest. And finally, the seventh picture is the harvesters. And notice that the harvesters are, will you tell me, what are the harvesters? What does he say they are? His angels. Now, first of all, just ask the question. It's, it's just so often in Scripture you almost forget to notice it, but... Who does he think he is if he thinks the angels are his angels? Whose angels are the angels? They're God's angels. Where does he come off calling them his angels? Well, he thinks he's God. And I think he's right. That's what all Christians think. All Christians believe Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. They're his angels. So he sends his angels out. Now, this is very, very instructive too. Uh, if they are his angels who are given the chat charge of harvesting and uh, pulling the the darnel and the almost it the darnel and the wheat apart if that's the angel's job then whose job isn't it not our job it's not the wheat's job the wheat doesn't go tear out the darnel and bind it up and burn it the the angels do that now perhaps you think that this is a very uh, obvious uh, uh, statement sadly it's not have you heard about the crusades have you heard about religious wars? Yes, you have. Uh, this obviously has not been an obvious point to everybody. What is the church's job? Is it to tear out the Darnell from the world and judge them and burn them? No. What is the church's job? Oh, we were just there. It's at the end of the gospel. What's our job? Go make disciples of all the nations, teaching, uh, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and behold, I'm with you all the days, even to the consummation of the age. That's our job, to preach the gospel, make disciples. That's our, our world, world word job, if you will, and among ourselves to worship and learn his word and, and grow in him. That, that is our job. So our charge is not to seek out Darnell and destroy them. Our charge, in other words, is not to seek out unbelievers and destroy them. Our charge is to seek out Darnell and evangelize them to preach the word to them, to seek to make them disciples. I'll return to that later. Before we move on, though, notice the things he doesn't talk about. For instance, he doesn't make anything about that the slaves were sleeping while the enemy was doing it. So there's no significance to that. Some people have said, oh, see, while they were asleep, he did this. If they'd been awake, he wouldn't have done it. No, that's, that's not a feature. That's not, that's not the point. They're entitled to sleep after a hard day's work. It, the point is he did this sneakily. He did this on the sly. That's the only point there. Jesus doesn't talk about it. And Jesus doesn't make an application of the stated uh, rationale of, of, well, if you try to get them now, you'll pull them out by the, by the roots and ruin the, the wheat. And he doesn't make anything of that. That's just part of the parable. So let's talk further then, uh, number two, about the separations as Jesus opens it up in verses 40 through 43. The separations, 
basically of the darnel and the wheat, uh, as you would expect. So first of all, letter A, the separations of the darnel to begin with, verses 40 through 42. Having explained the symbols, he says now, therefore, as the darnel are collected and burned up in fire, notice he says fire. I'm going to say why I'm telling you to notice this later. Burned up in fire, thus will it be at the consummation of the age. He says it again. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all the trip-up sticks and those who do lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. Oh, there's fire again. There there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says that the angels, his angels, he sends out at the consummation of the age, which is the harvest time, to, to take all of the evil ones out of his kingdom. Not that it was his kingdom before, but that when he comes, he brings his kingdom with him. You see? The king and the kingdom are inseparable. And when the king comes, then he brings the kingdom. And so, uh, to, to speak of uh, my friend, the property magnate Ben Barlas, if, if Ben were to buy a house that had squatters in it, say, and he bought this house and he went to take possessions out of it, he might tell someone, I'm going to go um, ask the, the squatters to leave my house. Well, when they squatted, it wasn't his house, but, but he's taking possession of it now. And so in part of taking possession of his house, he wants the squatters out of it. Do you see? And so likewise, it's called his kingdom because he's coming now. And the, and the first thing he does in coming is he rids his kingdom of all of the sons of the wicked one, of, of all of those who are evil and who are trip-up sticks, as he says. Now, what's this? Well, you've seen before I've translated the word scandalizo. Uh, we get scandal from that, but that doesn't really help us. That's, that's our use of the word. Scandalizo or a scandalone is the word here. It's, it's a trap. And the scandalone is, is, the, is the, the trip stick that maybe the bait could be put on. And when the animal would take that bait, it would be trapped. And so it's used as, a, as an image of people who cause others or tempt others to sin or to leave the Word of God, to leave the truth of God, to leave the holiness of God. And, and our world is filled with those things. I mean, you literally can't turn around hardly without seeing an intended enticement to sin. Amen? It's everywhere. You, you can't even hardly go out into the desert to get away from it. It's everywhere. But all of that is going to be removed when the king comes. Every enticement to sin is going to be removed from the kingdom. That's, that's part of what he does when he gets there. Uh, he removes them. But notice, too, that um, he mentions fire, and he says, there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says fire a couple of times, and he says weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, let me just ask you in passing, I will return to this, but is, is the weeping and gnashing of teeth, is that symbolic of something? Well, that's literal. They, they will really weep and they will really gnash their teeth either in, in anger or in pain. They'll weep and regret and, and uh, fury. Uh, so is the fire literal? Well, why, why would we think so? He says fire both in the parable and in the interpretation of the parable. And he says it a couple of times. I'm going to get back to that a little bit later, but I just wanted you to notice that. Because then we have the separation of the righteous, letter B in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine out as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, this is a reference back to Daniel chapter 12, where speaking of the end times, the angel says, and those who have insight will shine brightly like the, sh like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is obviously, they will shine out as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Well, he said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom belongs to his disciples. It's theirs. They're sons of the kingdom. And in that kingdom, they will shine out as the sun. They'll shine like the sun. Right now, they're called to shine. We're called to shine, but we're shining in darkness. We're shining in the nighttime of this world, the darkness of this world. But when the sun comes, it's going to be light. It's going to be daytime. It's going to be bright and glorious. And we will shine like the sun in that day. Uh, John says that we are the children of God, but we don't know what we will be. But when we see him, we'll, we will be like him. 
We will reflect His glory. We don't now. We, we're driving beat up used cars now. We're, we're in bodies that are beset with remnants of sin and temptation and, and we're all dying, basically. We're all dying. But then we will be glorified and glorious and we will physically as well as spiritually reflect the glory and the radiance of our Savior, our God. So, there's the parable. There's the interpretation. Now let's linger another moment to make sure that we get some of the lessons of this. And first we have lessons taught about the kingdom plan. Uh, No more, uh, the kingdom we learn here is more than Israel. The field is the world, Jesus says. It's not just Israel. He's now, so where are the sons of the kingdom going to be? In Israel? Yes, that too. But they're just going to be in the world. They're going to be all over the world. This phase of the kingdom will not be geographically defined, in other words. Do you see what I'm saying? There's not going to be a Christian land or land of believers. There's not going to be a promised land, except insofar as the whole thing is. But the field is the world, and so the sons of the kingdom are going to be all throughout the world. Israel itself was cordoned off and isolated, and they had peculiar customs and peculiar diet and peculiar calendar that Christians do not observe these days. Those things were meant to mark them off as peculiar from the rest of the nations. But now we're just simply among the world. We're not in a particular land with those kind of peculiar markers to make us peculiar in that way. Uh, Balaam saw Israel and he said, well, that's a people who dwells alone and will not be reckoned among the nations in Deuteronomy 23. But we're simply in the world side by side with the Darnel. So it's more than Israel in this phase. The coming of the kingdom is not immediate. Number two, it is not immediate. When does Jesus say this is going to happen? At the consummation of the age. That's not now. There is an age first. How long is that age? About 2,000 years plus. (laughs) I wish I could be more precise, but I can't. It's about 2,000 years plus so far. But it is headed towards a consummation. But the point is, it is after a season after a literal season that is determined by God, he's got a date. He's not, he's not wondering. He's not still picking. He knows exactly when the consummation is going to come, but it's future, and the kingdom has not come yet. And so, so remember, you say, well, I know this. Well, you know this, but the disciples, that's not what they were taught. That's not what they grew up with. Remember when we looked at Isaiah 11? Isaiah 11 talks about the branch that springs from David and his kingdom, and it's going to be a completely transformed world with lion and ox and lamb and children and cobras and peace and righteousness everywhere, right? Total transformation. So the Messiah comes, and the expectation is, boom, kingdom's going to come, but that doesn't happen. And this explains that. That's the mystery of the kingdom that these parables seek to explain. There's going to be a space, a span. However, number three, its coming is certain. Satan cannot stop its coming. What the enemy does just complicates life for the wheat. But it doesn't have anything to do with the harvest. The harvest is a set time, as Jesus says. The harvest is coming. Can't prevent the coming of the kingdom can make life kind of hard for the sons of the kingdom. Does his best to do that, but um, cannot put off the coming. The coming of the kingdom is certain. Those are some of the lessons we learn about the kingdom plan from this parable. How about this kingdom phase, letter B, this kingdom phase, P-H-A-S-E. Why are we here? Why are there still wicked people? Did the word of God fail? Well, he already answered that question, didn't he? Where? Parable of the soils. Is there anything wrong with the seed in the parable of the soils? Not one thing. Give it good soil and you've got an absolute miracle crop. What's the trouble? It's the soils. And so no, the kingdom's not here because the word of God has failed or God has failed. It's the hard hearts of the unbelievers and it's the uh, wicked, restless evil of Satan. So it's not a failure of the word. It's partly the activity of Satan, the hardness of human hearts, but it is under God's absolute control. We're right on course. And I know it's hard. I know it's not what we'd rather, 
but Jesus tells us it is what is. When we look left and we look right and we see Darnell everywhere, then we should say, right on course. We are right on schedule. This is exactly where Jesus said we would be. Right? Don't let that discourage you. If we let it discourage us, we just need to remind ourselves, Jesus did warn us. Letter C, what does it teach us about the wicked? Well, first, I want to ask the question, whose responsibility are they? Whose responsibility is it to do something about the wicked per se in the world? All the unbelievers, whose responsibility is it? And my answer, my first answer is, not ours. The Crusades and all such religious wars waged in the name of Christ were all wrong. The, the, to, to try to destroy unbelievers by military action is just the opposite of what this parable teaches, is it not? It's just the opposite of what it teaches. And another important lesson is our actions don't bring the kingdom in. There's a whole school of thought in Christians called post-millennialism, which is the idea that the church by evangelism uh, and our efforts at kingdom building, we bring in the kingdom of God. By, by the grace and help of God. But we do it, and Christ then comes. Not in this parable. In this parable, it's wheat and tares until when? Until Jesus comes and his angels separate the wheat from the tares. So it's not our responsibility to target wicked people and try to uh, eliminate them. And then you're saying, will you just allow lawlessness? No, no, that's the state's. state has the sword for lawbreakers and violence and whatnot. But I'm saying we don't target people for being unbelievers and take them out there. There is no, well, there's just the opposite of a license for that. There's a forbidding of that in this parable. It's God's. He'll bring it in and he will judge when he wills. And we, sons of the kingdom, must wait and hope and never lose heart because that day is coming. So that's whose responsibility. Second question, to what end? What, what, what is this phase, what is the end uh, of the wicked. Well, it's not success. It won't prevent the kingdom. It doesn't ruin the crop. The wheat are just fine. They're harvested. What their end is, is eternal judgment. And that's where I want to return finally to the fact that the parable says they're going to be burned, and Jesus says, fire, fire, fire. And you might think if that was the only verse you ever read in the Bible, oh, he's going to burn them up and they'll stop existing. Well, except what does he say? There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no end to either. There's no end to the fire, and there's no end to the weeping, and there's no end to the gnashing. So here's the point I wanted to make from that. There are many people who will say, ah, well, uh, the fire is not literal. Surely, surely hellfire is not literal. And and I will tell you, I don't know for certain whether it's literal, but I, I will tell you two things. One is, I think it is because Jesus says fire in the parable and he says it in his interpretation of the parable. So if you're saying it's symbolic, then you're saying that his explanation of the symbol is symbolic. Do you you understand what I'm saying? But the second thing I would say for absolute sure is if it's not fire, it's worse. The symbol is not a symbol of something less than fire. If you succeed in saying, well, no, I think hell is not literal fire, Oh, well, you haven't done any favors to the damned. If it's not fire, then it's far worse. And I'd like to say something else, too, before we leave this. I can imagine an unbeliever hearing this and saying, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you told the Christians to get off my back, you know, and that I don't have to worry about the wrath of the church falling on me. I don't have to worry about bands of roving Christians looking around for unbelievers who they can take out, you know, <laughs> who they can assault and, 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 and murder. Well, I just I want to say this with all earnestness and all sincerity. Friend, if you don't repent and believe in Jesus, you'd give anything to have the church's wrath on you. You would consider it a a wonderful thing if the church could pour, all the church of all the ages and all the lands could pour its wrath on you instead of the wrath of God. Saying that the church doesn't target unbelievers does not let them off. It puts them on track for the eternal judgment of the inescapable, righteous, holy, eternal God. That's no place you want to be. What possible good reason can you imagine that you have for not making peace with God through Jesus Christ while you still can? This is no place you want to be, friend. This is no place you want to be. So finally, what about the righteous? What does it teach us about the righteous? Well, in the present age, the righteous are going to 
Be surrounded by unbelievers. And that's going to be a situation of trial and temptation. If Jesus says that he's going to remove all the uh, trip-up sticks from his kingdom, then what does that mean that we're living in the midst of? Trip-up sticks. <laughs> Everywhere. Like a picture yourself in a minefield. Picture yourself in a, in a stretch of uh, pasture loaded with bear traps. And that's where we are. And they're, they're everywhere. It's a tough, tough time. And Jesus prayed just about exactly that in John chapter 17, verse 15. His high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And you think, well, couldn't you have? <laughs> couldn't you have asked that? But he didn't. I don't, do not ask that you take them out of the world, but what? To keep them from the evil one. So we're kept from the trip-up sticks, from the temptation, but we're still in the world. That's our present, but our future is glorious beyond all imagination, shining like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Imagine that, walking around radiant and glorious, not struggling and failing and sick and weak, but radiant and glorious. And where are you? Are you in your favorite place in the world? No better than that. You're in your Father's kingdom. And Jesus says that's where the sons of the kingdom are headed. No matter what the enemy can do, that's where the sons of the kingdom of heaven are headed. So this age is an age of growth for two kinds of seed. Side by side, all mixed up with each other. We're not called to escape it. We're not called to destroy it. We're called to endure and to shine while we're in it. But our endurance is not grim, it's not dutiful, it's not gloomy, it's hopeful, it's trusting, it's joyful, because the harvest is coming. And when the harvest comes, we'll see our beloved one face to face, we'll be made like him, and we'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Well, that's a glorious hope, is it not? That's a glorious hope to look forward to, no matter how dark it is now. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word from the Lord Jesus Christ and for the truth with which it is jam-packed, truth we would never have figured out for ourselves. My prayer, Father, is that any disheartened, laboring, burdened believer here will take courage and hope knowing that the difficult place where we are is known by God. It's part of your plan that you will give us grace here, but this is not forever. Every sigh and sorrow is temporary for us, but we're headed for a glorious future in the kingdom of our Father. Give them hope and joy. Lift them up and strengthen them. And for everyone who's walked in knowing that, uh, not knowing the Lord Jesus as Savior, if they thought they did but don't, please remove the blinds from their eyes. And if they know they didn't, then please show the glories of Christ to them and grant them ears to hear and a heart to believe, and draw them to salvation in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.